this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath earlier this week on march 27th and 28th the negev desert in israel saw a summit of foreign ministers from six countries along with israel's foreign minister yair lapid and us secretary of state anthony blinken Also in attendance were the foreign ministers of the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, Morocco and Bahrain. Hailed as a historic summit by Israel, this meeting is widely seen as an attempt to present a unified front against Iran. But why this summit now and what are its implications in the context of the ongoing Ukraine war and the negotiations over a possible resurrection of the Iran deal also known as the joint comprehensive plan of action or jcpa we look for some answers to these questions from stanley johnny the hindus international affairs editor stanley thank you so much for joining us thank you sambhat uh, stanley uh, this meeting comes at a very interesting time uh, in terms of the churn in geopolitical alignments sparked by the russia ukraine war and the pressure on different countries including countries like india uh, and and the middle east gulf monarchies from the west to take a firm stand against invasion so what in your assessment is the diplomatic intent behind this summit organized by israel is israel trying to change its status in some way in the region uh, i think there were there were uh, uh, a few factors one is of course the iran factor which is i think for both israel as well as the gulf monarchies uh, iran is a common factor which is bringing them together so we see reports that uh, you know the iran nuclear deal is on the verge of being revived uh, in other words the united states is returning to the iran nuclear deal so uh, which is deepening the kind of security anxieties of the israelis and the gulf monarchies so that is one factor so which is bringing them together and then secondly uh, you know you also saw that anthony blinken had uh, attended the event so the americans uh, which is also very obvious that the americans were uh, frustrated with the position the emiratis particularly the emiratis and the israelis took uh, vis-a-vis the russian invasion of ukraine so uh, of course the, for, from from the american point of view there were two issues one is to uh, kind of uh, uh, convince their allies in the region that the iran nuclear deal is not going to hurt their strategic interests uh, and then secondly to prompt them to change their position to take a more uh, you know proactive or more critical position of russia's uh, invasion of ukraine so i think all these factors were at play but that the heart of uh, this coming together because this is something which was unimaginable a few years ago because the abraham accords were, were signed in 2020 when the uae uh, recognized israel and okay before that there were backroom contacts between the gulf kingdoms and and the israelis but now everything is in the open now they are talking about a security envelope an israeli security envelope comprising israel as well as the gulf monarchies uh so i think uh, the regional geopolitics at the heart of it of course russia plays a the russian invasion is a factor but at the heart of this uh, env- this regional uh, realignment i think is uh, the iran nuclear deal and the perception there is a growing perception in the region that the united states is walking back on its security commitments 
uh, for the Gulf kingdoms. Right. So you just made two interesting points here in terms of uh, the intent behind this uh, summit. One, of course, uh, one of them being uh, the attempt by the U.S. to reassure uh, the regional powers, Israel and the Gulf monarchies, uh, about the Iran nuclear deal. But I don't understand one thing here. If the resurrection of the Iran deal, if it comes through, it will effectively put a cap on Iran's nuclear program, which had, in fact, become active only when the U.S. pulled out of the deal and impose sanctions. So why should Israel and the Gulf monarchies worry over a renegotiated JCPA? Because it's going to cap Iran's nuclear program anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, I think there is a slight, uh, you know, uh, difference between the position the United States, originally the Obama administration had taken, and the positions taken by the Gulf monarchies and Israel. Because uh, the Obama administration looked at Iran and found that the Iranian nuclear program as a, as a challenge to America's interest in the region. Or rather, it wanted to cut, uh, it wanted to scuttle Iran's nuclear program. And the solution the Obama administration came up with was diplomatic engagement. You know, the, the, the classical characteristic policy, sanctions on the one side and diplomatic engagement on the other side. Uh, and uh, President Obama, I think he was successful. Successful in a sense, he got, I mean, it was a painstakingly long diplomatic negotiations, multilateral negotiations involving Europe, Russia, uh, China, uh, Americans, etc., etc. And then eventually they got the nuclear deal, which, uh, as you said, cut back Iran's nuclear program. Right? Iran had committed to the terms of the agreement, and Iran remained compliant with the terms of the agreement until May 2018, until President Donald Trump pulled the United States unilaterally out of the nuclear deal. So, from the American point of view, they identified Iran's nuclear program as their most important challenge. And the solution was to address Iran's nuclear program through the JCPOA. And then they met the objective. But then you come to the Middle East, come to West Asia. Uh, the problem with, uh, say, UAE, Saudi Arabia on the one side and Israel on the other side. For them, definitely, Iran's nuclear program is a, is, is a, uh, you know, is a challenge. Because... Uh, you know, Iran is a signatory of NPT. Iran has also said that it is not developing whatever nuclear bomb many times. But at the same time, I think Iran was developing, uh, Iran was enriching uranium at a higher purity. It was building more centrifuges. It, its stockpile of uh, enriched uranium was also rising. Which means even if Iran had made it clear that it was not intended to make nuclear bomb, I think from a tactical point of view, Iran wanted to reach the capacity to make the bomb, like say, for example, the Japan model. I mean, you build the capacity and then stand short of making an actual bomb, which itself posed a security challenge to these countries in the region. While at the same time, they faced a dilemma because Iran was ready to cut back on its nuclear program in return for lifting the international sanctions. But lifting the international sanctions would also mean that Iran would be allowed to join the diplomatic and economic mainstream of the world global order. So Iran is a huge country with immense oil and gas potential. And if Iran is allowed to tap its natural economic potential, you know, Iran is obviously Iran stands to become a, a bigger, far bigger power in the region. It is a natural a big power in the region like Saudi Arabia in terms of landmass, in terms of population, in terms of resources. But Iran has been caged for decades because of the sanctions and its rivalry with the United States and other countries. So here, 
the nuclear nuclear deal was an opportunity for Iran. In a sense, it it was ready to cut back on the nuclear deal in return for the lifting of the sanctions, which means Iran would economically would become more powerful. And economically becoming more powerful means for Iran, Iran would translate that economic might into more military might, more conventional military might, which includes its ballistic missile program, which includes its technological uh, technologically advanced drones program, which would also include supporting its proxies in the region, which includes Hezbollah, uh, you know, now the Houthis in Yemen, and uh, the mobilization units in uh, Iraq. Uh, so this would also pose a security threat to the countries in the region. The Americans do not see Iran's conventional strength, uh, military or economic power as a direct threat to the United States, obviously, because the United States is far away. But the countries in the region see both Iran's nuclear program and Iran's conventional economic and military power as a threat to their interests. So, the nuclear deal is addressing only the nuclear program, whereas strengthening Iran's economic might. Iran's conventional standing in the region, which Israel and the Emiratis, Israelis and the Emiratis, as well as the Saudis, see as a threat. I think this nuance is very important, the way the Americans and their allies in the region look at Iran. So the Biden administration is more or less following Obama's playbook, like they want to address the nuclear program. And in return for, they are even, uh, Axios had reported a couple of weeks ago that the Biden administration is ready to lift the terrorist attack of IRGC. But in return for some commitment, some verbal commitment from Iran that it would, you know, scale down its operations abroad. So these verbal commitments do not really work, you know. So but the Biden administration's primary concern is, is uh, primary concern remains the nuclear program. Whereas the other countries see that as part of the nuclear deal, Iran's conventional standing would be more powerful. So I think that is what is bringing them all together to address the second problem which is which would be which would be even bigger once the nuclear deal is materialized right so you you said that uh, the because of uh, the possibility of iran translating its economic power once it is mainstreamed and integrated into the global order for certain military objectives or strategic objectives it may have in the region for this reason uh, the Gulf monarchies and Israel would want Iran to be sort of permanently economically chained, but but isn't that uh, like asking for too much? Isn't it a bit unfair to uh, to a country which is so large with a huge population to say because of the things you may do in the future, we want you to be in a situation of permanent economic deprivation? Isn't that a bit odd uh, to take a stand of that kind? It, it is. It is. Uh, um, it is. Uh, and the Iranians, I think, had realized this, so that's why they had. Uh, adopted this hybrid approach of developing the nuclear technology on the one side, which uh, would help them, I mean, according to them, uh, in two ways. Either you reach that threshold, you know, strengthening your security um, calculus, or you trade it off for economic benefits. So that was the Iranian bet. And uh, uh, you see what is happening now is that uh, it's going to pay off, right? They are ready to trade off, which they demonstrated their willingness to trade off their nuclear program in 2015. And Trump came and sabotaged it. Uh, but now the Biden administration is again ready to do it because the problem is that even for the Americans, they don't have, you know, they want to tackle the nuclear program, but they don't have a plan B. The plan B is, of course, to go and bomb Iran. 
which I don't think is feasible at this point of time, the United States, especially after Afghanistan or what is happening in Ukraine, etc., etc. It would be very difficult for the United States to take a unilateral military action against Iran. So the only possible way or the only practical uh, possible uh, way for the Americans to address nuclear program is, uh, is through diplomacy. And Iran is ready to engage them. And Iran is uh, ready to trade off their nuclear program in return for economic uh, benefits. So this is, I think, they had realized that there was a plan to kind of, you know, keep them permanently under sanctions, etc., etc., in the region. And they came up with a counter strategy of breaking through this, uh, you know, economic embargo. Uh, and uh, I would suggest that the Iranians are, uh, you know, uh, they have at least started seeing some positive results of their strategy. Uh, whereas on the other side, of course, it would create responses from uh, Iran's regional rivals. So what can they do, you know? Because they see uh, that Iran emerging more powerful in the coming, um, let's say, years, coming months or years, if the nuclear deal is materialized, if the sanctions are uh, lifted from Iran. And you also see, if you look at Iran's foreign policy in the last, let's say, 20 years, uh, America's invasion of Iraq, which was, a which was disastrous from a humanitarian point of view, which was also disastrous from a strategic point of view, because it, it, it uh, you know, invariably it turned Iran into a regional superpower. It, it handed uh, Iraq, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, which was a buffer between, uh, you know, uh, the Shia Iran and the Gulf monarchies. So it, it turned uh, Iraq into a Shia-controlled country, practically deepening Iran's influence in the country. So the buffer is gone. Now, once the buffer is gone, that itself created, that itself deepened the security concerns of the Gulf countries, right? And now uh, you are going to lift the international sanctions which means Iran would be economically more powerful. So this will, definitely this will have uh, consequences in the foreign policy thinking of uh, Iran's regional rivals. And Iran's regional rivals were in two camps until now. One is, of course, the Gulf uh, monarchies, including Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And the other is Israel. Israel sees Iran as its most important uh, threat in the region. So uh, when you see, you know, uh, the prospects of Iran emerging out of the current chaos stronger, at the same time, at a time when the United States is resizing its presence in the region, right? The United States is already out of Afghanistan. Its presence in uh, continental Asia is shrinking. And the United States still retains thousands of troops in the Gulf. But at the same time, you saw the U.S. focus was shifting towards the Indo-Pacific region. And when Saudi Arabia was attacked by Iranian drones a couple of years ago, when Saudi oil facilities, half of Saudi production, oil, daily oil production was knocked off because of the drone attacks, which the Americans and the Saudis blame Iran for. Iran, ha Iran has uh, um, uh, denied any responsibility, but still, you know, logically speaking, some Iranian hands were involved in it, in the attack. Uh, the United States did nothing to offer security to the Saudis. And now you see the Houthis are targeting Saudi oil installations, or even Emirate, even Abu Dhabi, the UAE, on a weekly basis. And uh, the so-called security umbrella, which was offered to the Gulf countries by the United States, in the case of Saudi Arabia right from the 1940s, in the case of UAE from the late 1970s or early 1980s, the security umbrella, there are holes in that security umbrella right now. So the Gulf countries are faced with two problems. One is the emergence of a more emphatic Iran, 
whose economic sanctions could be lifted in the near future. And on the other side, the shrinking security umbrella provided by the United States. So they realize that they are up to themselves. They have to do something to address these issues. I think that is what is bringing the Israelis, the Emiratis, the Saudis, they haven't officially recognized Israel, but we know that, you know, things are very good, cool with uh, between the Saudis and the Israelis as well. So this is what is bringing everybody together, I think. Right. So when you were uh, speaking earlier about the two reasons for, for the summit, one, of course, was the Iranian nuclear deal, which we've discussed uh, quite extensively. The other was, of course, the U.S.'s uh, wish to get a firmer response from the Gulf monarchies uh, on the Russian uh, invasion. So, do you think this summit of six foreign ministers would have happened at all if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine? Or, like, how, how are these six countries, to put it differently, how are they, with the exception of the U.S., aligned vis-a-vis Russia? Yeah. So, of these six countries, let's keep Egypt... Morocco and Bahrain out as of now because their foreign policies are largely related with their more important partners and the grouping. So let's take a look at uh, the Emiratis and the Israelis for now as well as the United States. So uh, the UAE refused to, uh, the UAE actually abstained from uh, the UNSC vote on Ukraine, which was a shock, I think, for many in the West because of all the people, the Emiratis. Uh, they had developed very close ties with uh, the United States, especially in uh, recent uh, years. Uh, and, and then Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, though, Saudi Arabia did not send uh, its representative to this meeting. Saudi Arabia is also an important player in the region. And Saudi Arabia and the UAE leader refused to take Biden's call. So, interestingly, before the Russian invasion, the narrative was that Biden was uh, refusing to talk to MBS. And now, uh, after the war broke out, the Americans wanted Saudi and Emirati support because they wanted these countries to pump out more oil. But they refused to take Biden's call, but they had talked to Putin before the war, both of them, both uh, Mohammed bin Zayed as well as uh, MBS Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia. So UAE, you saw UAE abstaining and UAE hasn't joined any sanctions. And I was just uh, reading the UAE energy minister statement just a couple of days ago. They say that we are ready to condemn Russia, we are ready to go against Russia, but you give us uh, 10 million barrels of oil a day, then we are ready to do that. Uh, So UAE has clearly taken, articulated its position that it would remain neutral. And the Saudis also did the same thing. The Saudis had also recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Saudis are considering uh, to uh, translate a portion of their oil trade with China into yuan from dollar. Uh, You know? Uh, that they are in a pretty much advanced stage of doing that. And the Saudis have also invited Xi Jinping to the country, the same Saudi leader who refused to take Joe Biden's phone call. So I'm not saying the relationship between the West and the Gulf countries are collapsing. No, far from it. But at the same time, I mean, the West and the Gulf countries were in a very close alliance for decades. And there are cracks in those decades. And the Ukraine crisis, uh, uh, you know, has reinforced that, uh, let's say, that widened these cracks which were already appearing in the relationship between the Gulf countries and the United States. In the case of Israel, you see, the problem is that for for Israel, for the Israelis, Russia is now a neighboring country because of Syria. So, uh, from 2015, the Russians are there in Syria. And the Syrian airspace is practically controlled by Putin, in a sense, the Russian military. 
and the israelis continue to bomb syria at will but they are not bombing bashar al-assad's troops they are bombing hezbollah movements or iranian shipments i think there was some kind of an agreement between the israeli leadership and the russian leadership that the israelis would be allowed to carry out their military operations their air strikes inside syria targeting the iranian shipments or hezbollah which israel uh, you know thinks is important to maintain its uh, security uh, equilibrium in the uh, in the region but what will happen uh, if israel let's say that the americans wanted to send iron dome air defense missile defense system to ukraine which if they had done it would have um, you know boosted ukraine's missile defense system entirely but israel says no israel because without israeli permission the united states according to their agreement uh, defense agreement the united states cannot ship iron dome to ukraine so israel refused to send missile defense system to ukraine israel refused to join any sanctions against russia i think the reason is that if israel does anything like that putin could said the israelis that enough is enough you can't bomb syria anymore or rather there would be a conflict in syria skies between the russians so russia russia has already deployed their missile defense systems in syria they can activate it so israel would be in trouble uh, so the israelis are also walking a fine line so all this suggest is that you know the regional dynamics have changed rapidly over the last 10 years it was not the same west asia of 2003 when the united states went into iraq you know without any uh, provocation or without any un uh, mandate like the same way the russians did this time so it is not the same west asia so it has changed and the regional countries are acknowledging that change for the uae russia is a partner in the opec plus grouping for the saudis russia and china are becoming increasingly important partners they also see the united states is resizing its presence in the region the us security umbrella is shrinking for the israelis they know that they have to live with the russians because the russians are there in syria israel is very particular about its security concerns and they can't compromise on that and israel by the way is the most important american ally and israel's occupation of israel the palestinian territories the illegal occupation of palestinian territories is protected by the united states for decades still israel is taking walking a balance uh, you know uh, balance line on the ukraine crisis so i think this shows how the region has changed in uh recent years and the united states is of course frustrated with these changes or frustrated with the responses of its allies so coming back to your question i think this is the context of the the regional countries the west asian countries taking a balanced position or neutral position vis-a-vis the ukraine war and then secondly would this conference have happened i think there was a fair chance because uh the domineering theme is iran so uh, even before the ukraine war you know iran had brought together these countries abraham accords was signed in 2020 so it would still have happened definitely but i think the the blinken participation it adds the russia angle to the conference right now uh, you you spoke about uh, you know the increasing pressure being brought to bear on on different allies of the us from the west for taking a position now israel is i mean practically the closest ally of the us uh not just in the region but overall as well uh, but we don't seem to see that much of pressure being brought to bear on israel compared to say the kind of pressure india is under you know we know that the russian foreign minister is sort of slated to visit india and before that visit we have had a flurry of uh, visits from different western power officials 
coming to delhi and you know talk to india about this so is there a bit of a disjunction or a discrepancy in the in terms of india is not such a close ally it's a we are more of a strategic partner but there is a lot of pressure on india to sort of condemn or take a stronger position against russian invasion whereas israel seems to sort of be getting off much lighter yeah i myself wonder uh, why this is happening uh, in a sense it's true uh, it's evident for anybody to see uh, israeli prime minister uh, was there in moscow meeting Trump, meeting president putin in the kremlin when the invasion was underway uh, naftali bennett was there and uh, as i said earlier israel still refuses to send iron dome uh, defense systems to uh, the ukrainians so they retain their neutrality this iron dome defense system is something which has been made by israel is it it's a collaboration it's made by the israelis it's a, an israeli american partnership so there is a defense partnership between these two but as per the partnership uh, i mean if they want to import it they need the permission of consent of both parties so that's why the americans are not able to send iron dome to to uh, the ukrainians so there some american lawmakers had actually pitched for it earlier but israel said no israeli prime minister said no and israel is also not part of any of these new wave of sanctions against russia not any of those sanctions no they haven't joined sanctions at all the emirates haven't joined the sanctions at all turkey which is your nato partner ha- hasn't joined any sanctions turkey is mediating the uh, you know mediating between these two turkey hasn't joined any sanctions so i mean it's a bit uh, uh, yeah it's a bit perplexing because uh, turkey is a nato partner your defense partner and uae is hosting thousands of your troops in its air base and israel is your most important ally in the region and all these countries have taken a neutral line whereas india is not an ally you know india is a strategic partner as you pointed out but you see i mean yeah india is uh, india is not just under pressure there is all kind of commentary uh, from the west attacking india i mean one is that india is not uh, uh, you know one one argument is that india's global position is receding india is not able to determine its interests india's interest uh, uh, you know is in line with taking a stronger position against russia etc etc all kind of patronizing arguments are there but one possible explanation we could give is that since india is a big market they uh, want uh, india to somehow join the sanctions or or at least uh, cut back on energy uh, imports from russia because they think that uh, the russians in the future would use the markets indian and chinese markets to overcome the heat of the sanctions and india is also an important defense uh, buyer from the russians so uh, any plan to weaken russia economically i think would uh, depend on the positions india and china would be taking given the size of sheer size of the markets and the defense uh, relationship these two countries have with russia and china is of course not going to uh, you know take decisions under american pressure at least when it comes to the economic uh, partnership okay on military side the chinese have already said that they would not support russia the chinese ambassador gave an interview to an american media but on the economic side the chinese would continue to deepen ties with russia but maybe the west doesn't want india to do that so that could be one reason uh, yeah but definitely there is uh, uh, there is a double standard there is a completely different two different approaches towards india and uh, america's allies in the region both are both have taken neutral position in this conflict but both are facing different approaches from the west 
Right. Uh, we're running out of time, Stanley. So one final question before we uh, wind up. And coming back to the West Asia region, uh, we have spoken about the Gulf monarchies, we've spoken about Israel, uh, and we've spoken about Syria. So coming back to uh, Syria and, and a few other regional powers, how does Syria, which is a Russian ally, and Turkey, which is a NATO member state, uh, which uh, which is also sort of trying to mediate between Ukraine and Russia. How do Syria and Turkey fit into the West Asian uh, geopolitical matrix, given that they are also sort of fancy rival powers to Iran and Israel in the region? Uh, so there is a larger realignment is also happening in the region. We talked about this Arab-Israel conference. But at the same time, you see Turkey and the UAE, which were at the opposite poles until recently, uh, have warmed up to each other. And then the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad traveled to Dubai again, I think, last week. And he was there. He met with uh, Dubai leaders, etc., etc. So that suggests that the UAE is also warming up to Assad. And UAE was one of the countries that kind of that had taken an extremely hostile position towards Syria uh, during the civil war. Syria was expelled from the Arab League. And uh, UAE, the Saudis, and others had joined uh, the Western effort to get rid of Assad. Obama had called for Assad to resign. They actually wanted regime change in Syria. Uh, but I think Bashar al-Assad's visit to uh, the UAE is a statement from the Emirates that Assad has won the civil war, uh, thanks to the Russians and the Iranians. So they accept the reality that Assad is not going to go anywhere. So now they have to work with Assad. And also, Assad is, they also, I think, th they think that Assad is deeply in the Iranian uh, influence right now. Because maybe at one point of time, they thought that Assad would fall and they can cut off um, Iran's influence in the region because uh, the Syrians were an Iranian ally. On the other side, what happened was that Assad not just survived, and Assad's survival allowed Iran to deepen, further deepen or extend its influence across Syria. So now, the UAE realizes that if they want to check Iran's growing influence, they will have to reach out to Assad. And they want Syria to be back in the Arab League. Now, Jordan and the UAE are batting for Syria to be back in the Arab League. Uh, so, you see Turkey and the UAE, they are warming up. You also see Assad being brought into the Arab political mainstream. So, there is a lot of churning happening at this point of time. Uh, in the region. So where this all is heading to, we can't say. But what we can say with certainty is that I think the most important contradiction in the region, in investigation geopolitics, is the one uh, between Iran and its allies and its uh, proxy organizations on the one side and its regional rivals that includes uh, UAE, Israel and Saudi Arabia. Right. I think this is a very uh, fluid time for this region and as the Ukraine war progresses or eventually there is a ceasefire, we are going to see uh, many of these uh, realignments sort of precipitate into a new equilibrium perhaps and when that happens, we should probably revisit this subject once again. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Stanley, for uh, sharing your comments and insights. Pleasure talking. Thank you, Sambhat. My pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.